Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dumbrell Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Kishore Mabubani. He is the author of Has China Won, along with many other books. And he's also a Singaporean academic and a previous diplomat. He was also the president of the UN Security Council. And today we're going to talk about his book, of course, and also China-America relations. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Okay, hello, Kishore Mahbubani. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. My pleasure to join you. So we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, book, uh, Has China Won, uh, which I just recently finished. Um, but I have to say, it, it seems like a lot of the topics you've covered in your book are becoming even more relevant, especially recently with the recent escala escalations from the consulate issues mm -hmm. and uh, to Pompeo's recent, what which, which some people are calling a pretty bizarre speech on China. It seems we're in a little bit of a downward spiral in terms of relations that um, have been kind of increasing in speed, don't don't you feel? Yes, uh, it's a very it, I, was, I was very saddened to hear the the speech because uh, you know you you would um, give the impression uh, you would get the impression from the speech that he is uh, overestimating China. Uh, actually, he's underestimating China <laughs> by getting China all wrong in right. many critical respects, uh, sadly. Yeah, yeah, it, it does seem like that, doesn't it? I mean, and it's not only, and I, I suppose this ties in, it's not only the government relationships that are becoming polarized, but the public opinion also is becoming mm. more and more divided. And there's very few balanced voices out there in that regard i have to say there's actually a lot of people here in china that really appreciate what you do not because you're so-called you know pro-china like everybody likes to label somebody where they are because you also mm. talk about what the negatives are and what china mm. needs to do better in your book but because you're you're fair but I'm, I'm curious um saying even the slightest positive thing about china tends to really irritate a lot of people and mm. <laughs> i've experienced this firsthand and um, I've read some of the colorful comments under the videos <laughs> that you appear in as well. Yeah. Um, but you've got a good track record on your predictions about the directions the world will mm. take. And you rely on facts and data to talk about what you think will happen next and what's happening now. So mm -hmm. have you, uh, what I'm personally curious about, if you've ever analyzed or thought about this kind of reaction, and if you have mm -hmm. a personal opinion on whether you think this is a problem with people truly not believing what you say or that they don't want to believe what you say, even though what you talk about is actually happening in front of our very eyes here. Well, uh, I you, you put your finger on a great uh, mystery. Uh, why, why can't people be objective on China? So, for example, you know, uh, when uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says that uh, President Nixon wanted to induce change and he said change didn't happen, Actually, in many ways, uh, America can take a lot of credit for the tremendous transformation that China has undergone uh, since uh, President Nixon visited uh, China 48 years ago. So, in fact, uh, uh, the American dream of creating a China that joined the 1945 rules-based order has come true. 
And indeed, that's a lot to, that Americans can celebrate because they have done a lot of good in the world by helping to, by integrating China into the world. They have actually helped to uh, lift up 800 million people out of poverty. And that, that's the single biggest uh, advancement in the human condition that has happened in the last 30 to 40 years. And, and America can take a lot of uh, credit for it. So it's, it's, it's bizarre to see this very anti-China, uh, how do you say, uh, pattern dominating American discourse, because there are lots of positive things that uh, have happened in China that uh, Americans should be happy about. But of course, the reason why you have this anti-China discourse is that there are structural reasons why a major geopolitical contest has broken out between the U.S. and China, and I can talk about the structural reasons if you want, uh, because that's what explains to some extent the negative uh, sentiment on China. But the negative sentiment on China, if you can inject reason into it, can hmm. actually uh, address the concerns that Americans have. Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting thing for people to keep in mind, because um, there is this feeling of people saying that, you know, we've tried playing Mr. Nice Guy, you know, we've tried waiting for China to change and now we're going to get tough. But like you said, China has been changing and China has been evolving all of this time. Um, and the way that they're trying to engage China to to change China more just seems really like, like uh, bizarre, as you're saying. You know, in your book, you you reference uh, uh, Lee Kuan Yew uh, a few times, and he's uh, you know a man recognized as the fa mm. one, the founding father of, of Singapore. Mm. And I became a, a fan of his work after seeing his uh, 92 panel with uh, Chris Patton at Hong Kong University, mm. where he had Chris turning red in the face after so eloquently calling out what what the British were doing. But I learned so much more about him from your book. So I knew that Singapore had a great influence on China and people mm. like uh, Deng Xiaoping. But mm. I didn't know how much uh, Li had as an individual. And I'm specifically talking about the example where he had a hand in convincing China not to mm. spread their political ideologies um, abroad. Mm. And his yes. ability to influence China was, of course, helped by his patient calm and respectful approach to understanding mm. China. But I, I'm so it would it's interesting that the United States isn't trying to take that approach also because it's proven to work. But mm. before we get to that, I'm actually kind of curious if Lee Kuan Yew's philosophy on dealing with China has mm. rubbed off on the people of Singapore where they're willing to think about China more rationally than the rest of the West. Or are you a bit of a special case where you seem to embody a lot of his patience and measured approach when it comes to China? Mm. Well, I would say that, you know, one of the great blessings in my life, uh, as I look back on it now, is that I had the opportunity to work with not just one, but with three geopolitical masters of Singapore. Uh, they were Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, the Prime Minister, the, Dr. Go Keng Chui, the Deputy Prime Minister, and Mr. Rajaratnam, the Foreign Minister. And all three had phenomenal minds. And as you may know, in some of my writings, I said that one reason why Singapore has been exceptionally successful is because the founding fathers of Singapore were as brilliant as, if not more brilliant than America's founding fathers. So, you know, I learned a lot from them. And one of the clearest lessons I learned from them is that uh, when you are from a small state, you have to be very, very realistic because you cannot change the world. 
you have to understand the world as it is. You've got to deal with the world as it is, not the world that you wish that you had. And so that's the realism that I uh, hopefully bring to my writings. And that's a realism which I hope can also be helpful to the United States to understand China. Because one of my key points is that China is not a threat to the American way of life. Right at the right at a great spot, we lost each other. So I'm sorry, I'm going to get you to repeat that. My internet connection right. should be okay now. Um, so I got to the point where you were talking about um, the other great uh, leaders you got to work with. My internet connection right. should be okay now. The, the one thing, one big lesson I learned from them is to be very realistic about the international environment because a small state like Singapore cannot afford to engage in wishful thinking. We have to learn, learn to deal with the world as it really is, not the world that we wish that we had. So in the same way, I believe that in the United States uh, practices realism, realism of the kind that George Cannon advocated uh, in the beginning of the Cold War, realism of the kind that Henry Kissinger uh, advocates. And uh, America will discover that China is not a threat to the American way of life uh, in any real way. In fact, in many ways, the, given the, all the problems that America faces today, uh, domestic problems, America will be better off working with China rather than against China. And and that's the rational cause that I'm recommending in my book, Has China Won? Right. And now it's interesting you mentioned the, the, the Cold War piece, because what I'm wondering is, in your opinion, so uh, China has been changed by America in many ways, but has America really ever taken, um, was there any period of time where they really did take an honest, uh, respectful approach to China? Or was, you know, back when they were dealing with them during the Cold War era, it was more because they had an interest in having a kind of a counterweight to the, the mm -hmm. Soviet Union. Um, have you ever seen anybody, any administration or anybody who's really trying to engage China in the way, um, in the respectful ways that um, uh, some of the Singapore founding fathers have? Well, I would say on balance, uh, uh, if you look at the uh, relations between United States and China from World War II, they went through three phases uh, from 1949 to 1971, in phase one, there was just hostility. Uh, and then, amazingly enough, after Henry Kissinger went to Beijing in 1971, and after Richard Nixon went to China in 1972, there was essentially a honeymoon, uh, I would say, for two decades uh, until 1989, uh, when the Cold War ended and when Tiananmen happened. And those two events, of course, created a whole new phase of uh, U.S.-China relations, which I call the ambivalent phase, which I'm trying to put across also in my multiple open online course that I'm doing on U.S.-China relations. Uh, and so there are three phases, but right now we are into phase four, which is outright hostility. And that's, a, that's something completely new. That goes back to phase one. <laughs> Right. From 1949 to 1970. But at the same time, I must emphasize uh, that many of these trends could have, been, could have been predicted by simple geopolitical analysis. So I've been predicting this U.S.-China geopolitical contest for quite a while, while at the same time warning that it is not necessary. Right.
Yeah. Well, it seems in regards to the question about the, um, the strategic interest in China, uh, it, it's interesting that you mentioned up until the end of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, some might try to make the argument that that's when China out, uh, lost some of its usefulness in terms mm -hmm. of uh, uh, strategic um, kind of position here. But I, I mean, you're right. Seeing what's going on now, um, you know, before this consulate issue, um, tit for tat kind of a thing, you know, for me, I, I feel like Marco Rubio's interparliamentary alliance on China, the IPAC, is kind of the epitome of the, you know, disrespect and hostility. A bunch of countries teaming up to hold China accountable while everyone's fine with Pompeo sanctioning even the families of international court investigators who want to look into America's war crimes in Afghanistan. But are we perhaps looking, or am I looking at this the wrong way? Is America's need to stay number one, the very reason that they want to treat China as this illegitimate power? And it's simply not in their own perceived best interest to respect China as China begins to outperform them in so many ways. Well, I would say there are three structural forces that are driving U.S. hostility towards China today, uh, which I, of course, discuss in my book. Uh, the first, of course, is what you just mentioned, that whenever uh, the world's number one emerging power, which today is uh, China, is about to overtake the world's number one power, which today is the United States. The world's number one power always pushes down the world's number one emerging power. And Graham Allison has documented this uh, quite well in his book, Destined for War. But the second structural force which makes the US-China geopolitical contest very dangerous is that it's driven by dark, subterranean, emotional forces. And this is what I call the, the fear of the yellow peril that has lain buried in the Western imagination for centuries, ever since the Mongols came close to invading uh, Europe, uh, taking over Europe. So uh, this is an emotional uh, dimension that I, that I would like to surface, because the one lesson I learned from Freud is that the best way to get rid of subconscious uh, impulses is to surface them into your consciousness and deal with them and then get rid of them. And that's why I bring up this uh, uh, yellow peril dimension. And it's real because at the end of the 19th century, the United States Congress passed the Chinese Racial Exclusion Act, which was to keep Chinese out. And why, why do you keep Chinese out? Because of the fear of the yellow peril, you know? So it's real. And the structural dimension, which is also explains why the Democrats, uh, as you know today, as enthusiastic as the Republicans in, in, in attacking China right. is because there was a bipartisan expectation, a very strange expectation uh, on the part of the United States that as the United States progressively engaged China, as the United States opened up China's economy, by opening up China's economy, the United States would open up China's political system and then China would become a liberal democracy and two liberal democracies would live happily ever after. But you know, one of the most uh, provocative things I say in my book is to tell my American friends, be careful what you wish for, because a democratically elected leader of China will be far more nationalist than a leader of the Chinese Communist Party of China, right. because the leader of the Chinese Communist Party of China can afford to be take long-term rational positions towards China, but a democratically elected leader will be forced to do things that are being pressed upon him by his electorate. And that's a right. lot of strong 
nationalist Chinese sentiment uh, that is there, which is real. And if the Americans want to get a flavor, what it is like to have a democratically elected leader in China, they should watch what Erdogan of Turkey is doing, you know. Erdogan in Turkey, this has disappointed many people in the West, but then that's what happens when you have a democratically elected leader. He has to represent the nationalist aspirations of his people, and therefore he changes Hagia Sophia back into being a, a mosque. And you know, the, if the Chinese become nationalists and, and revisit the hundred years of humiliation, they, will, they may start demanding reparations from the West for right. what happened for hundred years. And so it's actually very, 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 uh, how do you say, very reasonable for the Chinese not to, not to raise these issues. And so it's, it, this is why the United States should really reconsider whether it is in the United States' national interest, and I keep emphasizing this, okay, I'm not advocating an anti-American position. <laughs> I'm actually telling Americans, think carefully where your real interests lie. Right. And your real interests uh, should not be a result of wishful thinking, but going back to Lee Kuan Yew, a, a result of careful analysis of where your real geopolitical interests lie. Right. Yeah. And I guess there's a little bit of a dilemma in that also, because, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, imagining what a, um, a leader here in China who needed to basically win a popularity contest would have to do, um, what that would look like. But I, I like one of the other points you make in your book where you say that one of the other one of the national interests of America is to stay as number one. Mm. And if they really believed that pushing democracy onto China, if they really believed that China adopting democracy would make them even more powerful, would make their people even more prosperous, do you, do you think they'd really want them to have democracy? So I guess there's two balancing things. It's like, you know, yes, democracy would yes. be bad for Americans. Uh, I mean, democracy in China would be bad for Americans for, in some ways, yes. but perhaps some of the people who are really pushing for it are looking forward to the mess that could possibly mm. come out from that. Yeah. Well, that's right. And I you know one, one of the great things that, I mean, I'm genuinely puzzled by this, to be honest with you, because, you know, America spends more money on strategic think tanks. So America has the best strategic think tanks in the world in terms of quality of mind of people and the amount of money it spends. But America has the worst strategic thinking in the world because the United States is often carrying out policies that are against long-term American national interests. Right. You know, so it's actually in America's interest, frankly, to see a very careful, very slow transition in, in China. And, you know, the one probably, you know, the best strategic thinker the West had was Napoleon, who said, let China sleep. For when China wakes up, China will shake the world. And, 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 and here is China trying to wake up slowly, gradually, adjusting to the world. And what does America do? America does the opposite of what Napoleon advised and go and shakes up China and say, wake up, wake up, excuse me. You know, right. it's not in your interest, you know. So, right, you know, right. It, it's, almost as though, it's almost as though the ABC of strategic thinking uh, has been missing from the uh, American policy making. And that's why, as you know, one of the points I make in the book at the very beginning, 
He said, the man who gave me the fundamental insight for my book, which is that the United States lacks a comprehensive long-term strategy to deal with uh, China is uh, America's greatest living strategic thinker, uh, Henry Kissinger. And I'm sure, I have absolutely no doubt, that he's very, very troubled by how the United States has been treating China. Because in his, in his own book on China, he keeps emphasizing the Chinese are playing a long game, right? They're playing go, not chess. And the United States must play a long game. But instead, the United States is playing a very short-term game uh, responding to uh, emotional impulses, as you saw in the recent speeches by Trump administration officials, rather than sitting down carefully, rationally, analytically, working out a, a, a balanced and realistic long-term policy, which is what, in that sense, I'm actually trying to be helpful to the United States uh, by saying there is a more rational way of managing your relations with China. And think right. about it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you talk about the think tanks also and their participation in a lot of the trouble of what's going on. But I mean, you kind of touch on the problem with that also in your in your book. I mean, you just have to look at um, who some of these think tanks are funded by. You know, I, I get I get into a lot of uh, discussions on Twitter and um, it's really interesting to see a lot of these people working for these think tanks are the ones who love to call um, call guys like me tankies. And it's interesting because uh, they're funded by people that actually make real, actual tanks. <laughs> and so I know you were talking in your book um, where, you, you know, some of these arms manufacturers have um, manufacturing facilities in key congressional areas as well in America. And it's like, how do you get around that? Um, so, you know, it, it, it's... It, it's, it's, I'm glad you I'm glad you talked about that in the book also because that seems like that's an issue that needs to be fixed before you can actually get yes. quality advice to the right people, isn't it? Yeah, but, but you see, the, the, the curious thing here is that, you know, uh, some of America's greatest leaders like Eisenhower, you know, and I have a quote from him uh, somewhere that says that every, every tank, every fighter jet, every aircraft carrier that you build uh, you're robbing the poor of America, which is true because, you know, really, America today doesn't need 11 aircraft carriers. And, and, and of course, as you know, the, what I, the other point I make in a book that a Harvard professor, Tim Colton, told me is that American aircraft carriers are yesterday's weapons. You know, they're sitting ducks in the, fa in, in the face of hypersonic new Chinese uh, missiles. So uh, it doesn't make sense to invest money in aircraft carriers or spend yeah. money or burn money in aircraft carriers. And similarly, George Cannon also emphasized, uh, you know, in, in all his writings, he said at the end of the day, the outcome of the contest, he was talking, of course, between the United States and Soviet Union, he says it will not be determined by how many guns or how many bombs you have. It will depend at the end of the day on which society has greater spiritual vitality. And that's dead right. And so what the United States should be doing rationally, if the Chinese challenge is real, the Chinese challenge is not military. So reduce your defense expenses. The Chinese challenge will depend on which society is more vibrant. And frankly, if you look at it objectively in terms of data, the United States is the only major developed society where the average income of the bottom 50, 50% has gone down over a 30-year period. Yeah creating what the two Princeton University economists case in Deaton call a sea of despair among the white working classes. So if Cannon were alive today, he says, 
let's fix our spiritual vitality first. And then right. by contrast, as you know, in the United States, in, in China, the Chinese people, in terms of improvement of their uh, well-being, improvement of their standard of living, have just experienced their best 40 years in 4,000 years. So there's far greater spiritual vitality in China today uh, among its people. And just this weekend, I began reading a new paper by the Harvard Kennedy Ash Center Oh, yeah, I've seen uh, pointing that. Yeah. out uh, how the uh, the resilience of the Chinese Communist Party rests on the fact that the vast majority of Chinese people are very happy with the Chinese Communist Party. And I personally, you know, I personally, as you know, came from a very poor family and, and very lucky. I've, I've done very well. Uh, when you consider I was put on a special feeding program when I was six years old, I had no flush toilet. Uh, six of us living in, in one bedroom and things like that. So I've experienced real poverty. And I know the greatest liberation, the first great liberation in life is to be liberated from poverty. And, you know, if, if, if 800 million people get liberated from poverty by the Chinese Communist Party, why should they overthrow the Chinese Communist right. Party that, right. has, that has liberated their lives in such a powerful way? And, yeah. and, and, I, and I wonder why these are huge realities. This is not a little hidden stone. This is a huge boulder staring at your face, which American thinkers cannot see. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's really interesting about the, uh, the, the spiritual vitality. Uh, but they're focusing on all these other things, because I guess the argument you could make also is one of the other things is going to be the, 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 the technology sector, because it seems like wars are fought kind of online these days. And you can imagine that's why they're going around trying to undo a lot of Huawei deals. I can't imagine that uh, TikTok is really being considered to be banned from the U.S. because they're afraid the Chinese Communist Party is going to steal videos of people dancing to Justin Bieber. But mm. uh, I, I think it's that they're they potentially could lose their dominance on um, mm. global social media. Uh, but so it, it seems like what's tying into that is it, the way they do that is also kind of demonizing and trying to to, to turn everybody else against China. Mm. But to me, it, it seems like overall America hasn't really been doing a, a good job of this in terms of you know making allies. They're they're mm. stealing PPE shipments from their partners, mm. threatening them over deals with China, mm. penal, penalizing partners for for following the JCPOA deal with Iran that they decided to mm. violate and walk away from, and their weaponized U.S. dollar. Mm. Um, it just seems so disorganized and undermines their efforts to team up on China. And especially when you consider, and you talk about this in your book, the vulnerability of incentivizing people to find an alternative to the US dollar, like you covered in your book. Yeah. So it seems like, wh what is the strategy? I mean, it's like, um, yeah. they're, they're, and, and, and it seems like none of these other countries are really paying attention to this. They're kind of looking at, they're not looking at what is America doing to us now? What kind of a partner are they with us now? Mm. Instead, they're thinking about what might China do? They're theorizing about yeah. what might China do. It just seems very disorganized, doesn't it? Well, I think I, I would say the reaction of the rest of the world, if you want to understand it, I think it's still in a stage of bewilderment. Because, you know, the United States, by and large, uh, to be fair, since 1945, has played a very benign role uh, on the global stage and uh, created a, the 1945 rules-based order, which has benefited not just the United States, but has benefited most of the world. And certainly Singapore's success is very much, and my success is very much a result of the 1945 rules-based order. So by and large, even though the United States has made mistakes from time to time, 
the rest of the world assume that the United States would always be a rational actor and the United States would be a generous actor taking into consideration the interests of other countries also and not just the United States. And certainly that was true of Barack Obama, I would say. But of course, the, the Trump administration has come as a big shock uh, to everyone. And they're mm. still trying to figure out whether this is a permanent shift in the American policies or just a temporary uh, aberration. But at the same time, you know, the key point here is that uh, the United States has uh, built up reservoirs of goodwill uh, uh, around the world, and we, which, has, which is why countries are not reacting so strongly. But of course, the Trump administration sadly is draining away these reservoirs of goodwill, and, and that's very dangerous for the United States. And certainly the one key vulnerability which I highlight in the book is that uh, uh, the U.S. dollar's role as a global reserve currency is a major asset for the United States, but also it potentially its Achilles heel. Because, you know, as I document in the book, uh, you know, the United States should not be complaining uh, about the trade deficit with China. Because when you, you, the, reason, the reason you get a trade deficit uh, is that the Chinese people have to work very hard, maybe uh, 18 hours a day, making products that they can then export to the United States, which American consumers enjoy. And how do they pay for it? The U.S. Treasury can just print money <laughs> and pay for these imports, you know. That's a great privilege that the United States have. And as, as you know, I quote several economists that say, with the U.S. dollar serving as a global reserve currency, America can afford to live beyond its means. Therefore, it's in America's national interest to preserve the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. But by weaponizing it and then now using it as a weapon against other states, the United States is sadly creating incentives for countries to walk away from the U.S. dollar. And, it's, and again, this year I'm again speaking I'm telling the United States that what you're doing is not in your national interests, you know, that you should not be weaponizing the U.S. dollar. You should make the, you should make the U.S. dollar the best loved currency in the world because that's how you preserve the, the status of the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. But you're right, when the three major allies, Germany, France and U.K., set up instex to right. trade with Iran and to bypass the U.S. dollar, that's a dangerous warning sign that I would pay very uh, close attention to. But again, the, because there's a lack of comprehensive, long-term strategic thinking uh, in the United States, the United States is also not paying attention to its strategic vulnerabilities. In fact, as a friend of the United States, I'm saying this is your biggest strategic vulnerability. Right. Yeah. They seem to be overestimating how far they can kind of push this. Um, you know, the, the, obviously the, the, the trade deals that are set up between China and Iran recently also are going to be settled in renminbi. You've got, as you mentioned a little bit, also the blockchain kind of uh, e-renminbi also that could somehow fit into the system. Mm. But, I mean, there are, and uh, the Instex, the, is it called Instex mm. or Intex? The, the system you're talking about. I think if I'm not mistaken, it's Instex, but I may be Instex. wrong. <laughs> yeah. So um, all of these kind of systems and frameworks being set up and the groundwork is being laid for what would be the most terrible thing for the US as you as you mentioned and um and they're not they're not looking you know I think one of the things too is tying back into what you were talking about whether it's left or right everybody kind of uh, uh demonizing China I remember seeing one of the political ads that Biden was attacking um Trump and basically it looked like the this presidential 
uh, race was going to be a competition between who's going to hate China more, <laughs> which is, mm -hmm. it was the most awkward thing. And people are afraid to say, like politicians aren't allowed to say positive things about China. I remember when Bernie Sanders was running, they dug up a really old video of him where he said that the Soviet Union has great social programs and in Russia, the subways are beautiful. They have chandeliers. And they used that as a video to say, look at him saying something good about a communist country. Yeah. It was like just this, uh, so the red scare, you know, back yeah. then. And I was like, what? But it, it, that's legitimately true. But it's created yeah, a situation. But, oh, you, you yeah. go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say that uh, what you just pointed out, you're right. I mean, the, the next four months uh, leading up to the uh, presidential election uh, in November will be very nasty for US China relations. And I, to some extent, I can understand why the Democrats. Uh, have to beat up on China because if they're seen to be soft on China, they'll be uh, uh, accused of, of course, being uh, having sold out to China. And as you know, in 1992, uh, Bill Clinton, when he was running again, President George H.W. Bush, was also very hard on China. And he famously said, uh, I will not, unlike President George H.W. Bush, I will not coddle the butchers of Beijing. That's a very strong statement to make. What's interesting is that a year later, in November 1993, I was personally present at the first APEC Leaders Summit meeting in Blake Island off Seattle. And mm -hmm. I was present on the island in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a tent. <laughs> so not very a big tent, but a little tent, uh, where I was present when Bill Clinton met President Chiang Semin of China and President Bill Clinton coddled <laughs> President <laughs> Jiang Zemin uh, of, of China and I saw it in my own eyes. So right. I, hope that, I hope that after the elections there'll be some uh, rationality but at the same time since America is a country that has the greatest freedom of speech that you're not shot for going against uh, conventional wisdom I hope some leading voices will come out and say Come on, at the end of the day, yes, we have to try and win elections, but we also have to be responsible. And let's, 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 let's acknowledge that China is a reality that we have to live with. And as George Cannon always said, don't insult your adversary. You have to deal with them in, in due course. Right. So the, 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 the instinct to impulse, uh, the instinct, instinct to insult uh, uh, China, which has become deeply embedded in American body politic, that they should they should find ways and means of restraining it because it's not healthy. Also, frankly, in, even yeah. in your personal life, it's not healthy to adopt such negative attitudes towards other people. Right. Yeah, and I think it kind of ties into also what you were saying. What could happen in China with democracy? The negative things that come with democracy is is exactly that. You have to mm. just play to the masses, even if you don't really mean it. Mm. Even if, like you said, a year or two years later, you're going to be literally coddling them. But this kind of a negative attitude, it it's like I mean, the other thing too is is like, what is the use of free speech if you have to self censor yourself like this? Which mm. is an ironic thing too, because everybody's always accusing companies of self censoring themselves for China, but that's literally what politicians are doing. And mm. I feel like when they do this and they rely on this, you know, evil, you know, country outside of America, 
Mm. It's created, I, th I think it's contribute, contributed to the situation you're talking about in your book, <laughs> where China and its people are willing to learn about the positives from America, but America is not willing to learn anything from China. And it's created mm. a situation where America's system looks stale compared to China's ironically ever-evolving political system. Yeah. And, See, the, and, the, yeah. Yeah. Go the, ahead, paradox, yeah. the paradox here is one, actually, that was very well explained to me by an Indian political scientist. And when he was comparing India and China, he said the difference between India and China is that India is an open society and China is a closed society. But he said India is an open society with a closed mind and China is a closed society with an open mind. And, and I think the same comparison today holds true between the United States and China because the United States is an open society and China is a closed society. But the United States is, a, is an open society with a closed mind and China is a closed society with an open mind. And I find in my discussions with Chinese uh, intellectuals, Chinese policy makers, they are far more open and aware of what's going on in real terms in the United States of America then Americans are of what's happening uh, in China. And I tell you when, you, when you talk of self-censorship, when I was doing this research for my book and I spent uh, at least five, six months in the United States and Harvard, Columbia and Georgetown University, uh, I can tell you that uh, 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 several of the China scholars, when I asked them, why aren't you speaking out? Uh, to try and moderate the anti-China uh, drumbeat in the United States. And the answer they gave me was that, uh, Kishore, I cannot speak up. I would be crucified if anybody says anything that yeah. is even remotely positive uh, about China, you're crucified, absolutely crucified. It's and really that's why, that's, yeah. that's, that's also why uh, I, I decided I should be the one uh, to come up with the book because I'm actually expressing things which I think many Americans want to express, you know. And I'm actually very heartened that, you know, like you know, Farid Zakaria told me uh, it's an excellent book and he recommended it uh, to his audience in the global uh, GPS program. And Martin Wolf, who's, who, who says openly that he's very pro-American, told me that it's an excellent book. And he's given me a wonderful new blurb and endorsement for the book. So I think those who are more thoughtful uh, in the United States of America really appreciate my book. Because all I'm trying to do is to, in a very rational way, explain America to China and China <laughs> to America. But in yeah. a rational way, without passing judgments, without insulting anybody, but just right. being very low-key and factual <coughs> in my analysis. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. When you when you mentioned, um, you know, open country with closed mind, it made me think of a quote by Eric Lee, um, who says, you know, in China, you can't change the party, but you can change the policies. But in in the United States, you can change the party, but you can't change the policies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's really a, a, a dynamic. I must say, Eric, that's brilliant on the part of Eric. You know, he's a friend of mine. So. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, he's he's great. Yeah, he's, yeah, great, he's got yeah. some good ideas. But what you were talking about, it's interesting. So you decided to say things that other people can't say, and you're kind of taking the heat for it, which is kind of interesting. I had I had a conversation with um, two nights ago. I had an hour and a half conversation with my uh, Swiss-born Tibetan friend, and he's lived in China. He's come over to China, lived in China for ten years, and he absolutely loves it. And um, he sent me some messages saying to keep doing what I'm doing in terms of some of my videos. But he, it, same kind of thing. He wouldn't dare do it himself. He's living back in Europe now. And he would be absolutely roasted by his other, you know, fellow second, mm. third generation Tibetans who have been taught to yeah. uh, hate China. So you've got this whole kind of um, situation of, mm. as I said, um, self-censorship. But onto the topic of um, you were talking about t speaking to intellectuals. And I'm really interested mm. about this. Because, you know, in your in your idea, you talk about eventually, you know, all societies become democracies or something along the lines of that. Yeah. But what I've witnessed on the ground here is even the Chinese people who had great respect for Western democratic systems, and many of them studied and worked overseas, mm. have started to reevaluate their ideas. It really started mm. with the um, Hong Kong riots, particularly because of how mainlanders and Mandarin speakers were frequently attacked. Mm. which in, in so many ways exemplifies to them Plato's philosophies on democracy about being mob rule. But mm. especially after seeing America's handling of coronavirus and all this kind of stuff, and there are, of mm. course, other democracies that handled it well, but from their point of yeah. view, they see the risks of what democracy might produce compared to what they yeah. have now and the direction they've mm. been moving over the past few decades. So in your mind, do you think democracy really is still inevitable for China or they might revert back to just further perfecting and developing, fine-tuning their meritocracy system more so? Well, I mean, that's a very big question. And I think uh, none of us can claim to know the answer because, you know, we are dealing with moving targets here. Right. And we are dealing with two big moving targets. First of all, we're dealing with the United States, which frankly... Uh, until recently has been the world's most successful society. And the world's most successful society by far, you know, as you know, I begin the book with a fictional memo to President Xi Jinping saying, mm -hmm. whatever, when, when China takes on the United States, whatever we do, we must never underestimate the United States. And it will be fatal for China to underestimate the United States. And you know, one of the key points I make is that in China, chaos is regarded as something terrible that should be suppressed. In Americans love chaos and the dynamism of uh, free speech and so on and so forth. But at the same time, the United States, you know, because it has been so successful for so long, mm -hmm. cannot conceive of the possibility that the United States may have peaked and may be going down in a, in a, in a structural fashion. Right. Structural fashion. Because... And this is, this, is the, this is a key thing that I wanted to warn my American friends, you know. I said, if it's a contest within a, a dynamic democracy and a communist party system, then the dynamic democracy will win. But if you dig, if you dig deep down into American society, it is frankly no longer a democracy. It is no longer a government of the people, by the people, for the people. It's become a plutocracy. Right. And a plutocracy, you have government of the people by the rich for the rich. Mm -hmm. And there's data. I give so much data in the book yeah. that documents it. And so that's also where Martin Wolf agrees with me that United States has become a plutocracy. Now, reversing plutocracy, by the way, is very difficult. And it's a bit like the struggle against feudalism because once the, the, the lords... Uh, and the feudal class become entrenched, 
the whole power structure reinforces their power. And the Americans haven't understood this, you know. And I, I'm surprised that, you know, like someone like Francis Fukuyama has, as far as I know, not warned about the dangers of plutocracy uh, affecting uh, the United States of America. And in the, I think, you know, by contrast, I believe China has become a meritocracy where they have to, right. they're finding the best people to run the country. And that's why China has done so well in many areas. That's why China has recovered so well, fastest from global crisis. That's why China has responded so well to COVID-19. So right. this is, this is, these are the new realities. And so the moving target here is that America may have peaked and maybe going down. And China is now just in the very beginning of a major a new re, major renaissance of the oldest and most successful civilization in the world. And right. so the, if the Chinese can keep up this meritocracy mm. and if they can keep up a tradition of having a government that, again, going back to the opposite of plutocracy, a government that actually serves the people you know, and improves their well-being, then the Chinese political system, as suggested by this Harvard Kennedy School paper, can actually be very resilient and can last as long as it continues to serve the people. So right. that, see, that, that, that's why it's a big mistake on the part of the United States, uh, especially if you look at the speeches of American leaders saying, oh, in a choice between democracy and communism, of course you choose democracy. But hang on a second, if it's a choice which is a realistic one, and this is the one I, I describe in great detail in my book, is between plutocracy and meritocracy, it's actually rational to choose a meritocracy over a plutocracy because if I'm at the bottom 10% of a society, as John Rawls says, that's what matters, I'm more likely to be rescued from the bottom 10% in a meritocracy than I am to be rescued from the bottom 10% in a plutocracy. But right. no one says that in the United States. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, so I mean, I grew up in, in Canada and, you know, we grow up with these ideas of, you know, these words like, you know, freedom and democracy. And we don't actually think about it any deeper than that. Democracy is the be all and end all word. You know, it doesn't matter that, you know, for example, Freedom House shows that 70% yeah. of democracies lack some of the most basic um, uh, freedoms. Yeah. But I think that's part of the problem is, you know, as soon as you, especially the name of the Chinese Communist Party, that's the worst possible name for a foreigner to yeah. hear got the mm -hmm. word communist in it. Democracy is what we, you know, people really need to be th thinking about this a little bit deeper. And I think you do that in your, um, in, in your book, but that's why uh, in, in my, in the Harvard lecture I gave the Harvard Kennedy school, I said that the Chinese com uh, CCP should stand not for the Chinese communist party, but for the Chinese civilization party. Uh, yeah, and once you realize it's the Chinese civilization party, you realize you're not taking on a communist party. You're taking on Chinese civilization. And by the way, it's only been around 4,000 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think when, when people really understand how China works, um, you know, I, I think if somebody read your book it, they, they, with a really open mind, they'd understand why China wouldn't want to rush in to something like a democracy. At the end of the day, I almost feel like though, even if it if it was, it might kind of end up like Singapore, because I learned something from your book where, you know, it's the same party that's elected over and over again, especially when you consider those reports and everything that that we saw in terms of the trust barometers that uh, mm. Chinese people have in their um mm. in their system. 
Um, but I, I guess the the other risk too, though, is like we, you you don't know if China will eventually move to a democracy. But one of the things that probably needs to be carefully looked at, unfortunately, is how hard and often how time how violent sometimes the U.S. tries to export their ideologies onto others, and how much more vulnerable open political systems uh, become. But on that topic, I like uh, the point that you made in your book about how every major imperial power throughout history felt they were superior than everyone else and spreading their kingdom and ideologies was a gift to the world. And today you have people, as you, you pointed out also in your book, literally saying word for word that America is the greatest gift to the world in centuries or possibly ever. <laughs> it's yeah. like how, you know, uh, how responsible do you feel this level of kind of arrogance uh, is for yeah. continually underestimating China's rise where yeah. um, people have a, yeah. uh, and also have a tendency to just get outright an annoyed yeah. at some of the points yeah. you make on China's rise. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you raised that because fortunately on that sphere, there are some American voices uh, the realist voices uh, that whom I, as you know, I quote in the book, and uh, two of them are Steve Walt of Harvard and John Mearsheimer of Chicago. I actually uh, add as an appendix in my book an essay by Steve Walt, where he tells the American, and, and I wanted him to say this because it's a bit awkward for a non-American to say this. You know, Steve Walt says, we Americans believe we are being very virtuous. Excuse me, do you know how many people we have killed? Uh, overseas, fighting wars every year. And, and many Americans, if you, are, if you did a poll, they would always believe that to China today is much more aggressive in the military front than the United States is. But, you know, the one, the one fact that virtually no American knows is that China has not fought a major war in 40 years uh, since its war against Vietnam uh, in 1979. And he has not had a naval uh, uh, fight a bullet, you know, literally, uh, for 30 years. And of course, it's unfortunate what happened at the India-China border. But as you know, no guns were fired there. Uh, it showed a certain degree of strategic discipline on the part of India and China. Whereas by contrast, the United States, even under President Obama, in one year, in the last year of his presidency, uh, President Obama dropped 26,000 bombs on seven countries, you know. That's shocking. That's it's, really, really uh, shocking. It's, it, it's, it's really remarkable. And I think the ironies go further when um, I'm not going to get into too much because there's so much propaganda. And this is something I tear apart uh, sometimes on my own Twitter about the prop, uh, propaganda against Xinjiang and what's going on in Xinjiang. Mm. But, the, but I want to get because uh, that's a big topic, but I want to get specifically onto something related to what you're saying is literally two years ago, the U.S. was bombing and targeting Uyghur groups just across the border from China. Uyghur mm. militant groups, literally two years ago. In 2002, mm. the East Turkestan group was listed as a, a terrorist group by the U.S. And mm. yeah, literally, there you know you've got these group, these countries in the West going around killing Muslims all over the world, and then as soon as they think something's happening in China, mm. uh, it, it, they just blow up. And and of course, mm. it's not really about a genuine care for anybody here. Yeah. Uh, but there's just so much hypocrisy, isn't there? Yeah, well, I, I always say when it comes to human rights issues, ask yourself a very simple question. Mm -hmm. Do you want to do good or do you want to feel good? If you want to feel good, just condemn, issue statements, you know, attack China. Would it improve anybody's situation? No way. But if you want to do good, then you should talk privately to China, quietly to China and say, okay, can we discuss how we can make things better? And frankly, 
that it would be good for the U.S. and China to have a private, intense dialogue about what to do about all these radical groups, because there are in this world radical groups. Right. And frankly, they pose a common threat to the United States, as we saw in 9-11, uh, and uh, as we saw in uh, uh, China, China had its 9-11 moment also when the Uyghurs did kill some uh, innocent Chinese too. So, and, and, and I actually believe that we can create a world of tomorrow in which the Islamic world, which has got 1.4 billion people, can be modernized and can be brought into the modern world. And that way there'll be no more Osama bin Ladens, no more Al-Qaeda's, no more Abu Sayyaf groups. We can kill all of them by promoting uh, economic development in all these Islamic states and all these Islamic societies. But that should be a common objective of right. the United States and China. And that's actually where they have a common interest. But of course, for the, from the point of view of the United States, the short-term gains of using the Uyghur issue as a propaganda weapon against China overrides their longer-term interests, uh, which are being pushed aside in dealing with a common problem together. Yeah, I mean, when you, I guess you've got the. That's always been the case, though, isn't it? I mean, you have you have Hillary Clinton who openly admitted that you know the U.S. funded groups like the Mujahideen and all of this stuff. They're they're regularly funding these kinds of groups, and you know one of the most awkward ones is um, there's a a weaker activist from the U.S. called uh, Rushan Abbas, and um, she is very vocal about um, these supposed kind of re-education camps or whatever you want to call it, and she literally celebrates the time that she spent working in Guantanamo Bay with the CIA overseeing Uyghur prisoners. And, and she admits it. She says, this isn't like a, a, a theory. So she says, yes, you know, I did this and I'm very proud of my time. And now I'm going to fight for Uyghurs that are locked up in <laughs> in, in China. So it's not oh, really, uh, yeah, it, it was really, um, it's really uh, quite awkward and surprising. Well, I, I shouldn't say yeah. surprising, really. But yeah. it doesn't seem like we're going to get anywhere close. And, and maybe I'm just a little bit more pessimistic to the idea of America and China or any other country really, truly uh, trying to stop terrorism, because it's yeah. always the, the, the geopolitical interest that's uh, that outweighs actual uh, progress. Again, may, I hope I'm just being more pessimistic, but <laughs> based on what we've seen over the years. I, I would say don't don't give up hope, because yeah. uh, I hope at the end of the day, and that's why I keep on writing. You know, this is my eighth book. And, but I've been issuing, uh, you know, and frankly, you know, in my first book that I wrote called Beyond the Age of Innocence on U.S. Relations with the Rest of the World in 2005. And, and, I, and I say this with a lot of sadness. I gave a lot of advice to the United States on how we should manage the challenge of the Islamic world, how we should manage the, the obvious challenge coming from China. This is 15 years ago. And if the United States had heeded my advice in my book 15 years ago, it wouldn't be having both the problems it is having now. Right. Yeah. It's, um, well, hopefully we can see a, 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 a change um, eventually in regards to that. But, um, you know, tying, tying our conversation uh, a little bit, moving into some current events in, in terms of the discussion about the American political system and, and structure, which looks like it's been in, in trouble for a, quite a while here. Um, and you do a pretty good job of pointing out how corporations write legislation and how lobby groups work and how military equipment manufacturers strategically place their facilities, as we mentioned earlier, to maximize their influence in, in Washington, D.C. So my question is, considering this uh, and the increasing 
wealth gap and lack word, lack of upward uh, kind of opportunity for poor people to enter the middle class. And as you mentioned, the bottom 50% mm. becoming poor. Um, do you feel this plays a role in the current protests and riots that are going on um, kind of underneath it all? And how hopeful are you that these protests can actually affect positive change? Or have you feel that potentially this just accelerated the decline of uh, the West that's been illustrated in your book in some parts? Well, I think, you know, uh, protests are, of course, very useful in terms of uh, expressing sentiments and getting rid of uh, anger that's in the society. But protests themselves will not result in the changes. Basically, you require the establishment and the elite to come together and acknowledge that you've got to change literally. And so, for example, you know, uh, uh, to put it very simply, there are very simple solutions to America's problems. Uh, the, the wealthy in, in America have uh, engineered the tax system in such a way that their taxes are being reduced all the time. And, if they, and it's actually in their interest to pay more taxes that could then go to helping the bottom uh, 10%. And, you know, this is not rocket science, you know. Right. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a question about how you distribute the wealth and income uh, uh, of a society. And in fact, you know, if you go by what American philosophers like, and I quote John Rawls a lot, in, in, and if Americans just go, went back to read a theory of justice and say, how do we implement a theory of justice today? Yes, that would solve America's uh, problems. These are not ideas from outside. These are American ideas that can be used to uh, retrieve the problems uh, inside the United States of America. But uh, there is, uh, un but you see that that requires also a certain degree of uh, brutal honesty in the analysis. And, 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 and that, that's what's missing at this stage. So my, my fear is that America will have to undergo a bigger crisis than what it has today before it wakes up right. to realize the problem. Well, especially, I guess, because you said it, it, it requires uh, certain people giving up power also. Um, so now in terms of, uh, I know you've got to go soon, so I'll just get through a couple last few questions. I know um, I listened to your debate on COVID-19 and accelerating the shift in order. And I wonder if you're of the opinion that if America is no longer led by Donald Trump, that some of the damage that he's done, isolating the US and breaking ties, um, do you think it can be undone with a administration change or some of the stuff he's done has kind of really made some permanent damage to, uh, to U.S. relations? Well, I hope uh, that, you know, I will, let's see whether Biden wins. I hope that a Biden administration, uh, especially if he uh, relies on the advice of Barack Obama, uh, will help to repair some of the damage that has been done by the uh, Trump administration. But, but nonetheless, it's a mistake to think that just because you change your precedent, uh, you can change all the structural vested yeah. interests. Like, for example, the logical thing for the United States to do would be to cut its defense budget and spend more money. And, and for example, as I say, I have a chapter called America, Can America Make U-Turns? And America should just stop fighting wars in the Middle East. Just stop, you know? Because yeah. if it had, you know, it spent $5 trillion on post-9-11 wars. If it had spent, if it had spent that 
uh, uh, $5 trillion on the bottom 50% in America, each citizen of the bottom 50% would receive a check for $30,000, right? Right. But yeah. all you have to do is stop fighting wars. And I don't understand why America cannot stop fighting wars. <laughs> so right. this is why. So it, it, this requires deeper structural changes yeah. than just a change in personality. Yeah, it probably goes back to those strategically located weapons manufacturers around the U.S. also, doesn't it? But um, yeah, and, and, and in that regard, speaking of war and this kind of escalating situation that we have, I know that you've repeatedly say, said a few times, you don't ever see really a hot war between the U.S. and China. And I hope you're right on that. But with what's been happening uh, recently, especially with how awkward and forced some of these escalations are, are you, as your opinion, even if only slightly changing a little bit in terms of the chances of a war, or are you still as sure as ever? Um, I'm just wondering if the situation has changed your ideas a little yeah. bit. Well, I, I, I remain reasonably confident that there will not be a nuclear war between the United States and China. Because in a nuclear war, you don't have a winner and a loser. You have a loser and a loser. And frankly, right. even with 300 nuclear weapons, uh, the, uh, China can destroy the United States uh, several times over. So yeah. uh, it doesn't need 6,000 nuclear weapons, which is what uh, the U.S. has, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but at the same time, I must I will confess to you that one thing I'm very worried about in the next four months, uh, going up to November, somebody in the Trump administration, not necessarily President Trump, might think that it is in their interest to start a small skirmish in the South China Sea and have a U.S. and Chinese naval vessels firing shots at each other, and that will immediately create a rally around the flag and help Trump get re-elected. That's, that's the sort of thing that worries that's, me now, um, happening in the next four months. That's exactly the thing I've been writing about too and having kind of a sinking feeling about. And um, I even put a, a thing out on my, because th th there was a story recently of these melon seeds that were sent to different people across the US and they were saying, oh, they came from China, be careful, don't open them. And it almost felt like it was some sort of a, a weird kind of like a, a false flag of some sorts that was trying to, being developed, trying to be developed. So I posted a Twitter uh, the thread where I said, make your predictions about what's going to happen before November if there is going to be a false flag or a provocation. Mm. And there was somebody who mentioned uh, the South China Sea. They said there are mm. some articles they're already putting out saying that China has mm. these killer submarines underneath the ocean and all this kind mm. of stuff. It's really, it's really quite worrying. But I hope, um, I hope, I hope we're, we're that that doesn't actually happen. Um, so what I'll do though. Uh, as I said, I know you've got to go soon. I just want to finish talking about the rest of the world's relationship with America versus China, mm. because it's it's been remarkable to see how a lot of these countries have been bullied or taken advantage of by America, remaining loyal mm. to them. And, and so instead of paying attention to what is happening to them with America, mm. they're theorizing about what might happen when dealing with China. Yeah. And Australia is a major example that comes to mind. And you mentioned also in your book, particularly considering their location, their Asia's neighbor and their mm. trade with China is far more important than their trade mm. with America. Yet they still act as China's little sheriff or uh, mm. deputy sheriff, as Bush once put it. Yes. So how, 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 how do you feel about this? How important do you think it is that other countries really start rethinking their relationships here? And do you see mm. any sign or hope of that happening? Well, I, I think it's very clear that uh, one thing I emphasize in my the chapter, how will other countries choose? is that most countries in the world don't want to see this U.S.-China geopolitical contest get out of hand. And most countries would prefer the United States and China to work together to focus on the common global challenges. In my book, I talk about 
uh, global warming. And I say that future historians will see US and China as two tribes of apes fighting each other while the forest around them is burning if they continue fighting while global warming is happening. So let's focus on the common challenges. That's what the majority of the world's population wants to see. And, and I think especially after COVID-19, uh, the view of most countries in the world is, please stop, press the pause button on the US-China geopolitical contest. Let's get together and fight COVID-19, kill COVID-19, and then maybe we can get together and, and continue to resume the contest. I think that's... A, that's a sort of almost unanimous message uh, from the rest of the world coming towards the United States and China. Yeah, that would be something great. And I think um, for anybody who um, who's any, in any position of power, I really hope they read your book because you give a lot of perspective on that. Um, you talk about, I know you've mentioned in our interview here, you've given a lot of advice to the US in that book, but you also give a lot of advice, good advice to China as well. Mm. Um, so it's really a balanced perspective. I really enjoyed the book and I hope that more people do read it. But I know you've got to head off for another uh, interview, but um, once uh, international travel uh, resumes properly, if you're, ever, if you're ever passing through the Shenzhen area, you have to make sure and yeah. uh, stop by. I've got I will, to, uh, I will come. Yeah. Sounds sounds good. Anyways, it was really nice talking to you. And we'll uh yeah. Nice talking to you too. Yeah, take care.